Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on the Mike Wise Show, we continue our celebration and analysis of The Last Dance. Episodes 9 and 10 are now in the books. Here's a spoiler. The Bulls won! We're going to go uh, inside the Bulls dynasty with a Hall of Fame journalist who has been there every step of the way. But first, as you know, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Exactamundo, Darlene, as usual. Hey, The Last Dance has been our obsession since its debut on April 19th, with the pandemic paralyzing society and the search for a vaccine in overdrive. Our sports star public was in need of a major basketball transfusion. And that's just what the last dance provided. Sam Smith is standing by and we'll get to him in a moment. But first, Bruce, what'd you think? Nine and 10. Uh, it's been my obsession for the last five Sundays and uh, it did not disappoint. I mean, Jason Hare and that entire crew, bravo. I mean, you know, get, get, get the Emmy speech ready. Yeah, I think so. And and also I, I, I have to give it up for SD Portnoy who was Michael Jordan's uh, PR person for life and Curtis Polk, who was with David Falk in the early days. He's sort of now uh, uh, shoot. He, he, I think he's a big CEO of the Charlotte Hornets. These people convinced Michael to do this and trusted others to let people show his authentic self, the good, the bad, the ugly. And what we got was the real Michael Jordan. And I mean, in all aspects, you know, I, I didn't want to um, I didn't want to say I didn't like Michael Jordan, but I just didn't know him. I, you know, I just didn't know. Even when I covered him, I didn't know him. I knew he was a guy's guy. I'm sure his father's murder would you know, that would that would throw anyone for a loop in their life. And, and but for the most part, Michael Jordan had lived a charmed life. And and here this guy is who essentially befriends a bull security guard. Um, and that guy becomes his father figure after James Jordan dies. And you know, that, that anecdote, just a small anecdote, but Michael Jordan calling that guy up at two in the morning crying, a bull security guard. Um, and I, like, I'm just thinking to myself, like, that, you know, the, the humanistic part of it, the Steve Kerr, Malcolm Kerr's father uh, being assassinated when he was the um, head of the American University in Beirut. Steve being an 18-year-old at the time in Arizona, his life changing dramatically. And yet here's Steve Kerr, like honoring his father's legacy, not just in basketball, but the guy he's become, like trying to make other people understand that we all live in this world together. And so, um, I don't know, I just, uh, man, I just, uh, I, you know, I get sucked into the human drama part of it more than I do the basketball because I know the basketball. That's what, that for me was what the, what this was about was, Michael Jordan, I saw parts of him that I hadn't seen really since the Kobe Bryant funeral where he where he got teary-eyed. This was this was not managed, packaged, homogenized Michael Jordan. This was not the Hanes underwear salesman or the guy that was dunking on Bugs Bunny. This was this was Michael Jordan unplugged. And I like that. I like that a lot. I I agree. I mean, it it really you know it it lived up to its um, uh, you know hype, I guess you could say. But right. I found you know you mentioned Steve Kerr. For me, the so much of what we saw in the final two episodes was Steve Kerr related because Steve Kerr, you know, as as was uh, documented, he was you know left fatherless when his dad was assassinated by terrorists when he was eighteen, and I mean. When he would go play game, he was at Arizona. When he would 
play games at Arizona State, the fans, the, the Sun Devils fans used to like, you know, shout like insults at him. I, I'm not positive, but I believe yeah. they Oh, I saw shout, that like, somewhere. I saw that yeah, somewhere was, where it was just it was the most it was the most unfeeling, awful thing you could possibly say to someone who lost their father. And, um, right. I, you know, and it just goes I mean, I'm sure it was just a couple knuckleheads. But it was, you know, the fact that it happened, it's, it's, you know, it's so wrong. And so, you know, so many, so many, you know, but at any rate, Steve Kerr, guy who doesn't get recruited out of high school, essentially finally gets a scholarship at the end at Arizona and, and becomes a star and becomes an NBA role player and becomes sure one of Michael Jordan's most trusted teammates. He was a metaphor for every role player that was ever on that team and all those teams. And yeah, no, I, I, I ate that stuff up like crazy. Um, I also, you know, like little things, I didn't know that, or I forgot that Phil Jackson was offered to coach the Bulls after the sixth championship, after everything Jerry Krause and Jerry Reinsdorf had said. Of course, I think he was going to coach a lottery team. <laughs> he was going to coach a rebuild because, and that's another thing, anybody that, you know, Michael Jordan argued that these guys would all, if they he, he would get them, you know, and sit them down and say, we could go for seven. That's nice to say. There is no way in hell that the guys on that team that had built up their value and were going to sign for deals that some of them should have never got, but they, they needed to make some money. They weren't going to go play for the minimum just so Michael Jordan, all those guys. I'm sorry. They weren't going to sign a one-year deal. They were going to get financial security at the end of some of their careers, like Scottie Pippen and others, and they did. And I have no problem with that. I still don't buy the argument that Michael Jordan was going to get more than three or four players to come back and play with him again. Well, you know, and in Phil's particular case, I mean, look, he was he was told before the season was – was even underway this would be his last season don't yeah. you think that his agent had already had some sort of preliminary talks with the lakers who were the next great mm-hmm. franchise up and coming with shaq and kobe i mean he probably knew that that job could have been his for the taking so it was probably very easy for him to say you know what jerry thanks oh, but yeah. no thanks i think i'll go win five more chips in los angeles right right well i at the time i um I remember uh, I wrote a story in 99, just a year later, um, that uh, I found out that that Phil Jackson had met with Dave Checkets, then the president of Madison Square Garden, and while Jeff Van Gundy was still the coach of the Knicks. And that was like, it was a huge story in New York, and the whole, Van Gundy went from the little manipulator that got rid of Ernie Grunfeld in some power struggle to the whole garden was, when that story came out, they were about to sweep the Atlanta Hawks in the second round and go to the Eastern Conference Finals, and they went to the finals that year, which is still incredible. Jeff Van Gundy. Yep, the whole Jeff thing. Van Gundy. And, and, and the whole Madison Square Garden at the end of that sweep, that series sweep, and Jeff looked at me on press row, and me and Isola, and he all of a sudden he's about to break down and cry while those chants are going on, and he grabs his Diet Coke on the side, and he just takes a long sip. So he doesn't ball in front of everybody. It was great. It was great. So at any rate, um, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, there were there were tons of things in here. I forgot about Dennis Rodman and the Hulk Hogan, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, little hiatus foray. Huh? <laughs> hiatus part two. <laughs> hiatus part two. I mean, the fact that you could do that in the NBA Finals too, like crazy, right? And he and like nobody knew where he was, and he, you know, part of me thinks that Phil did know, and he's just like, all right, I'm gonna act like I didn't know. I gotta act like I'm the coach. Damn it, just go do your thing, Dennis. Uh, how many organizations would? It's funny. I remember Flan, Fran Blindberry. I remember I was. Uh, I'm gonna get into this with Sam Smith, but how we were we we were convinced Rodman was gonna miss those free throws at the end because it's karma, it's basketball, it's life. And we thought Dennis was this, rat, you know, a radical figure that didn't need to be on there. And the bottom line was he was just a great rebounder with a lot of personal problems, like everybody else probably in that series in some way. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like we tried to make heroes and villains out of the Bulls. And the Bulls were really – people forget this. The Bulls were the villains in America at that time. Outside of Chicago – and outside of Ahmad and Michael Wilbon and Jay Adani and some other people that had personal relationships with some of that, the Bulls were not a liked franchise. They were they were very much the you know the um, 
the Empire. They were the first order band, and and the Jazz were like the little team that could. They were, they were chugging up that hill, and they had Stockton and Malone. Remember, remember Hot Rod Henley, Stockton and Malone, 45, 42, Jazz. I mean, they 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 were the little small market that could, and so most of the national media was rooting for the Jazz in both those finals. The Bulls had just become so big, but all said and done, they did it. They did it, and they pulled it off. And God, what can you say? I mean, it's just amazing. Well, you know, oh, another thing, I am not yeah. unless somebody fesses up from a pizza parlor in Salt Lake City, or a delivery guy says, "Yeah, it was me. I food." Like well, the inference that Michael Jordan was purposely food poisoned by somebody in Chicago, by somebody in Salt Lake City, you're not going to bet. You're going to only say, "Oh, there are five guys that came to deliver the pizza." Okay. Well, if they knew it was going to Michael Jordan's house, why wouldn't there be five guys? You know, they are, you know, who, and they never told me what the pizza was. Did it have anchovies on it? Huh? I could see that. <laughs> Did it have that? Was it a, was it a, what is it? A Supreme with, with sausage that was bad, you know, or like, come on. You know, what if it was just it a was, cheese uh, pizza? Utah was, was, and probably remains one of the most inhospitable visiting arenas, visiting cities for any, uh, opponent to come oh, yeah. in. I mean, those fans are brutal. And I was at both of those finals, as were you. Yeah. And I remember the house, you know, the the, loud, the three loudest or the two loudest arenas that I ever can remember being in were Seattle in the 1996 finals, uh, the key arena, and the Delta Center then. It was brutal. And, you know, it, even his kids and those rare sound bites that we heard from his kids, it was like, yeah, I don't think our folks wanted us to be in in Utah because you know <laughs> what those fans used to yell right. at players and still do. So oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, no, there, there was, and there there was, were little kids back then. There was some, there was some uh, uh, not covert racism. There's probably some overt racism that directed at other that, that that never came out. But but those are also great basketball fans. I will say this, um, Seattle. I agree with you, Seattle. Utah, the Delta Center, which I used to call the Decibel Center, and <laughs> and the Arco Arena in Sacramento, when it was when when, when that when, when that when the Kings were hot and they had shoot right after Jason Williams, Mike Bibby, Chris Weber, Stojakovic, Vlade Divac, boy, they had a they had one of the fun passing teams of all time. In fact, they were the Warriors before the Warriors, except they didn't play any defense. Um, they didn't play enough defense like the Warriors did, but they were fun to watch. That that Sacramento crowd was incredible. I mean, it was just so loud. I've heard the Oklahoma City crowd is somewhat like that when, especially when Durant and Westbrook were going. But I, I don't know if there's anything like it. I do remember Indiana was a pretty tough place. They showed the woman uh, that would oh, be yeah. Oh yeah. I, I do you remember her? She would I sit don't behind the her, bench. You could, she was you awful. Could. When the Knicks oh, yeah, came to town. Read her lips. You no, know, when the Knicks came to town, she would say stuff like, um, she'd say, like, hey, Starks, hey, Sacco boy, hey, Sacco boy. Like, oh, boy, it was just brutal. She was just he nasty. Used to bag I could believe she got thrown uh, Kroger or somewhere, right? He was, uh, he used to bag groceries, so yeah. that's what she was referring to, right? She probably, yeah, she, pro and she, pro she probably met him there. I don't know. But <laughs> he, anyway, yeah, no, I, th th that place was really tough to play, um, and yeah, I really thought that the Bulls don't win that series if they don't win game six because Jordan's, I mean, Pippen's back did go out. Uh, it was just, the whole thing was, uh, the whole thing was good. It was, um, you know, it was it was a nice respite um, and it kind of gave us some sports to get into. I still think down deep, knowing what we do now, knowing what we did before, but even what we do now more, that Michael Jordan, the competitor, He's probably he's he's wishing he's wishing so badly that this coronavirus never happened. In fact, he's probably got an issue with the coronavirus now. And I, I don't like that because the coronavirus could be hurt soon. I think maybe we could get rid of COVID-19 with Michael because jo Michael Jordan um, was going to go head to head against LeBron James. Think about that. LeBron James. In the NBA Finals, if the Lakers made it, shoot, Clippers could have been there. But either way, you could have said you know, that would have even been more devastating for LeBron because he would have had to watch Michael on the nights that he wasn't in the NBA Finals and realize, oh, my gosh, the GOAT conversation is all, you know, up and back. So I don't know. Um, I think that, that that would have been his ultimate. But, you know, it's fun to see Jordan unplug. Hey, yeah. 
Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it's you know it's, people forget how great he was that were what there weren't there or you know remember only LeBron and some of the players of today as the players they remember. And Michael Jordan was a special, special human being um, as an athlete, as a competitor. It just it was incredible. You know, it was fun to watch, and it was. Um, oh, yeah. And it was. Uh, and now that he's an owner. I, I remember when the last labor dispute came up and, and Jordan had just taken over owning the, the Charlotte team. One of, one of the players or somebody said, well, you know, Michael's on the negotiating team, you know, so, you know, that's good for us. And I'm thinking, you guys are tripping. Michael <laughs> Jordan's not going to give you any inch. He, he's not one of you anymore, if he right. ever even was. He's yeah. on management side, and he is going to rip your heart out if, if he possibly can. So I don't know what they were thinking. Mike, I got to tell our listeners something about you because... Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, because, you know, Michael Jordan lit up the victory cigar, and I'm hoping that there's going to be a victory cigar for Mike uh, <laughs> Wise coming up soon because I want to let our uh, listeners know Mike has been nominated for an Emmy Award in the Capital Emmys for his series, his piece, Survived By, one year after the Capital Gazette shooting, a tragic, tragic episode, but one that you did an amazing 30-minute show on that you produced and also reported. And I remember when you sent me the clip last year when it first came out, my first response to you was, start writing that Emmy speech now because you're <laughs> going to be delivering it. And now you're nominated officially. I believe you're you have some competition in that category, but you are going to win. I don't want to jinx you, but I just want all of our listeners to know that besides being, you know, one of our stars at Pure Hoops Media, you are just getting it done across all media. So congratulations on the nomination. I hope you get the statue and you know, bravo, Mike. Uh that's nice of you to say, Bruce. And I, I did not expect that or see that coming from you. Uh, if you would not have said anything, I would have been hurt. And I, and you really would have been on my bad side. And these things, as you know, th these things cannot be done by one person. I'd like to thank, no, actually, I don't want to thank anybody. I stepped over a lot of people to get where I am. And I'm going to take the credit that I deserve. No. <laughs> You should I, thank um, Andrea, Andrea Shambly, I think, should be well, on the show. I, yeah, that, that is the real truth about it. It was one of the most emotionally wrenching stories I'd ever done. And I it came to be only because Andrea Shambly, who's on the, a guest of Pure Hoops Media, because she she essentially um, finished her husband's book. It was his last her last love letter to John McNamara, whom I knew a little bit as a sports writer. And she wrote this book, The Capital Basketball. And she gave me all this time and she trusts, you know, she trusts. It's something when someone lets their guard down and trusts you to tell their story. I'm sure Jason Hare felt this way with the Bulls and some of the things that Michael told them. But it's like this was a woman who lost her husband in a mass shooting and she helped convince a couple other people, Maria Hyacin, whose, whose husband Rob was shot and killed that day, and um, Summer. Summerly Garmer, uh, Summerly Geimer, she, uh, she essentially, her mother was killed in the mass shooting. She's like a 20 something year old kid. These three women sat down with us, interviewed with us, gave us some of the most wrenching one-on-one um, -on -one interviews of all time. And, uh, you know, I'll be honest, they're not gonna hear this, but if I can get my station to do it, if we win this thing, I'm, I'm just gonna give them the, I'm gonna give them the Emmy. You know, I really am. I'm going to give them the Emmy and they can split it. And then on the side, when no one's looking, I'm going to buy my own. Uh, so I get a statue, too. So everybody, uh, so, should, everybody I'll, so I look like I'm really like being altruistic. But down deep, I'm getting a freaking gold statue, people. Uh, but anyway, no, thank you. Everybody gets a statue at the Emmys, Mike. Right, right, everybody exactly. Gets one. Everybody gets a statue. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so it was very, yeah, it was very humbling, very cool. And um, yeah, I appreciate you bringing it up. I think we Good get. You, get I think we got to get to Sam Smith. He was awesome, right? Sam Smith was awesome. Sam Smith is a Hall of Famer, and uh, uh, we really appreciated him spending some time with you uh, on Sunday. Sam Smith of Bulls.com has been a longtime follower of Michael Jordan and his dynasty. Sam was at the Chicago Tribune for 28 years and has written books about the Bulls, including the Jordan Rules, and he hasn't stopped. 
He's made the transition from newsprint to digital media and adapted seamlessly from the past to the future. And did I mention that he won the Kurt Gowdy Media Award from the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2012? Hi, Sam. Mike, good to to hear you again. Um, I haven't seen you in a while, but I uh, heard your hair has grown back. Yeah, it's amazing. The the, uh, the chia pet <laughs> stuff you gave me is incredible. Thank you so you know, much. I got to tell you, I got to interrupt that because that's part of Jordan's greatness and what it separates him and makes him the greatest with all this uh, debate all the time is that it, before Michael Jordan, men did everything possible to cover up being bald. Now oh, you, you know, can have a shaved head and be proud of it. And that's because of Michael Jordan. That's that's a great point. You know, that I, I forgot about that because as big a sort of cultural icon as he is in sports and whatnot, it's a great point because I remember we used to have jokes before that. It was sort of like, um, you know, whatever it is, you know, uh, uh, who, you know, who did King Kong use as a roll on? And it'd be like uh, Tully Savalas, you know, or, you know, and or Yule Brenner. But after Michael Ball became cool, I remember, in fact, running into Charles Barkley of all people at like, you know, a finals in the late nineties. And he says to me, he goes, um, he goes, what are you doing? I go, what, what do you mean? What am I doing? He goes, he goes, what are you doing? Trying to act like you have hair, take it back to God, take it back to God. And he, he meant go bald. And, and of all people, of course, I listened to Charles Barkley and that's when I went bald. Um, and he's, so he's the voice yeah. of American basketball in a lot of respects, but, Actually, to give myself a brief plug, which I don't often do, but yes. I just finished my, my non-Homeric trilogy of Jordan, Jordan books. About five or six years ago, I wrote a book called There Is No Next. And, and that was sort of the thesis of it, is that there was no next, not because, you know, you can have statistical accomplishments, and, you know, LeBron's got this incredible longevity, um, but nobody is going to impact the society the way Jordan did, and part of it was timing when he came along, the sort of the financial birth of the NBA in effect with the salary cap and everything, and you know TV contracts and everything. But you know the shaved head and the sneakers and the men wearing earrings and exporting the game to Asia and beyond where people had never heard of anything. And, you know, I remember David Stern always talked about his first trips to China and saying they would ask about the red oxen, which is the word for bulls. They didn't know anyone else. They never heard of anybody else. The red oxen. The red oxen because of Jordan. So that, that's, you know, that's that incredible influence that he's had that really transcends the game and is responsible for you, Mike, having a happy life. Yeah, you're right. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, how – um, people of your ilk, like the Peter Vesey's, um, the, I guess, Mark Heisler's, um, the uh, Harvey Aridens, people who actually were either given a beat or became such a national figure covering the NBA when people, you know, sports riot, sports editors weren't making the NBA back in the 70s a league beat. It became a league beat for a lot of people. And, and one of them was me at the New York Times. And it did change my life because, shoot, I, you know, whatever I, you know, became uh, some, somewhat I can't acquainted with Shaquille O'Neal wrote his autobiography for him. And, you know, all of a sudden these, these financial things come into play. It's a weird thing because, and Sam, I, one of the things I really like about the last dance when we get to it is the, the whole notion of not just people seeing, and I know you like this too, people seeing Michael Jordan for the first time especially the millennial in, in anybody's household is sort of, you know, they've not been brainwashed, but they just never saw anything before LeBron James or Kevin Durant or Dwayne Wade. And now all of a sudden they're being exposed to this un, in, incredible, easily the most individual greatest player that I ever covered in any sport. Um, I think that's great. I also think it's great that people like Sam Smith are getting acknowledged again for being as seminal to the game as they were. And so I, I think that part of it's cool, just seeing you guys in the in the documentary talking about Michael and, and living in the moment. Well, that's completely unnecessary, that part, and I'm sure it's uh, hurt their ratings. As I told people, <laughs> uh, 
I, I've, I've been at the same spot, unfortunately, you know, I'm grateful of that. And the circus basically just came back to my door again. So <laughs> I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, which is what covering the you know, Jordan and the Bulls were when I was, at, you know, I started at the Chicago Tribune in 1979. And it was literally with Jordan his first week in Chicago. It was another, hey, here's the newest, latest uh, top 10 draft pick rookie. We got a bunch of them, Orlando Ulrich and, uh, Sidney Green, Ronnie Lester, the Bulls, Reggie Theus, the Bulls had all top 10 picks for about seven or eight years, and we would come in and do the boilerplate, um, you know, rookies first week in town. So I was I was up to see Michael at his uh, townhouse apartment uh, in the north suburbs. You probably remember the Virgo Center. Um, just uh, walked in, he had his ironing board out. I said, you know, this is kind of a con. You're just trying to get me some color for the feature. No, no, no. He said, I ironed my clothes. He said, you know, I got the big years, and I never had many dates in high school. I never thought I'd get married, so I took home economics courses. You know, I said, I'm, I'm also sewing some stuff, too. I said, well, I'll bring some stuff over. But, you know, with the documentary, what a great part, and it's a brilliant Jordan's marketing. It probably will be studied in business schools for, de- you know, generations uh, between his introduction in the 80s with Nike and the Get, uh, Spike Lee commercials and the Be Like Mike and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's this tremendous introduction, uh, reintroduction uh, of Jordan, you know, to a whole generation of people. You know, it's it's sort of like wasn't I mean I wasn't there for all the time, but like if you were in the 19th century, you heard about presidents, but you never saw them because there was you know so little communications, you no know, people never traveled much, couldn't get anywhere. And now, you know, and, and so it's sort of like that. All this generation has heard about this guy, but he's been this recluse basically since he left Washington in 03. Uh, yeah. You know, when the, when the NBA brings out people, if you know, Bill Russell, you can see he's in bad medical shape, yet he, you know, he's been at finals and events, all-stars and Elgin and Jerry West, of course, is still working, Oscar. You never see Jordan. He's the only one that never was at anything. And now, you not only you get him in, in, in what we, you, you know, how we knew him in the 80s, mm. like this joking, uh, funny, outgoing, challenging, competitive, uh, you know, last word personality you're seeing in these uh, interviews, you know, with sort of the fun-loving twinkle in his eye thing. So, and then plus the clips of all the, you know, these great years of the 80s and 90s. So it's this incredible reintroduction of, of this transcendent figure uh, that's really, you know, the great, in a lot of ways, the great appeal of this documentary. Yeah, I, I agree. And I I remember Bob Costas and some others talking once about the ABA, the old ABA, and how it was almost better because there was not that many news clips or, or uh, um, TV clips of it, that it was, it was almost better theater of the mind. You could actually imagine what Connie Hawkins did. I almost feel like Jordan was theater of the mind for many years, and now the video is even better, which is incredible. I um I I was there obviously the night that they won it against the Jazz. I was I came on to I guess the NBA beat when and the Knicks um, when uh, Jordan had already won three and he'd stepped away and. I remember I was covering the Nets for a year and then I went and covered the Knicks. And then all of a sudden Jordan came back that year and it was just, oh, it was, it, it was. but the thing about it is, is I remember you, you weren't the bitter jaded guy, but there were a lot of people in that sort of bull circle at that point that were just, God, the Bulls became such a circus at that point, became such, they were the Beatles that second time around in some ways. And I remember thinking, John, my, my, Mike and David Falk and everybody just felt so imperious. They were just pains in the asses to me. And while I like covering them down deep, I kind of wanted to see them get beat because I just got tired of the tired of the egos, tired of how, how important they thought they were. And sure enough, they justified it all. Where do you come down on the whole thing? Because at some point they made well, your life uh... miserable. That's your New Yorker, you know, in you, even though I'm a native New Yorker, I, I escaped and realized uh, you know, there's great there's great depth in humanity in a lot of respects to the world other than the New York um, cynical view of mankind, which is often justified. I, I agree and understand. Um, 
and you're right, you said earlier that yeah, there is tremendous myth making um about about Jordan, understandably so, because you know, we in America, really more than anywhere, it seems to me, you know, we celebrate the ultimate success. You know, either you're a winner and everybody else is tied for last place. You know, like the Buffalo Bills with the Super Bowls and these great I followed actually a lot of the AFL back then and, and the actually the ABA. I remember going to games in Teaneck, New Jersey to see the Nets, Comac, Long Island. I, but right, you know, and then there were some awful games and awful teams. And so there was, you know, myth as well to the ABA too. Uh, but we build that up. And, you know, so Jordan was sort of the ultimate team, the ultimate hero of that is that the American ethic is, you know, to support the winner no matter what, no matter, no matter how he behaves or, or however he got there, you know, the, the end justifies the means kind of thing. Mm. And so, you know, in our case, you know, of course, living in Chicago, you know, it's sort of different. You know, Chicago doesn't, didn't have a great uh, history of successful sports teams, not like New York with the Yankees and, you know, dynasties, Boston or L.A. and you know, and so it's a, it's a big city. And, you know, that's sort of that second city insecurity complex sort of hovered over Chicago, which I kind of could see from afar and then being up close, having come from New York. And so, you know, it was a rare thing that you can embrace. This was the rare time that Chicago had, because even in other sports, you know, they're great figures, Ernie Banks in baseball, whatever, or even, you know, Gale Sayers and Dick Butkus were like tragic figures. You got hurt or played with losing teams. And so here was this, for the first time, Chicago could really have, you know, you know we had the number one guy. And so it, it was this incredible source uh, of civic pride. And then it, it was the most unusual and, and spectacular championship team ever. There's, there's never been anything like it. And there never will be anything like it. There hasn't been anything like it. Because you've got the greatest player in Jordan or the way, okay, you want to argue it, whatever. You could take this one or that one. But then you've also got this unique coach with 11 titles, with this unusual way of going about it, even though he really, Phil is really excellent with X's and O's to the point. Red Holtzman hadn't sat on the bench as his uh, unofficial assistant yeah. in 6970 when Phil missed that season with back surgery. Um, so Phil knows here, but, but also with that Zen and the Native American symbolism and all that stuff. So you have that. And so over the time when you showed up, you know, now Rodman is a part of it. So you've got this most bizarre feature yeah. who is act, who's acting out and, and this incredible undefeated team that's never losing. You know, you know the, once he got there, he won every time. Nobody did, nobody did that, basically. You know, even Russell, with all those great championships, the one year Sixers finally got past him, got to win like every game of the season. You know, to do it, you have this incredible team in 67. And, you know, mm. LeBron's lost, the Warriors lost, Spurs could never repeat, Lakers couldn't get three, Celtics couldn't get three. You know, nobody has done, and this guy gets three twice in a row. So you have this extraordinary circumstance of these individuals. And so it grew to such proportions. And the other element, like you mentioned, which is a good point, you know, there becomes some, some resentment because, and I didn't particularly feel it. I, I loved you know, sort of my dream job, being involved, being able to do that. Growing up, I always admired the New York. I was delivered the papers when I was a kid, the Daily News, the Mirror, World Telegram. And I oh, yeah. loved the newspaper columnists. I, I, I never imagined I'd have an opportunity to do something like that. So it was always sort of a lifelong thrill to me. But when you're there at the beginning and no one's there, which we were in the 80s, the narrative was you can't win with Jordan. Jordan you know, Bird wins, Magic wins. That's how you win. You don't yeah. win by scoring. And, and, and so, you know, we're there traveling by ourselves all through the 80s with this with this great figure and this losing team, Jordan loses nine of the first 10 playoff games he played in, you know, because, wow. you know, essentially Jerry Krause is rebuilding the team under him. So, you know, I think you probably are seeing some of that resentment or like, Hey, we were here at the beginning. You know, what are you guys doing here now? Do you think you own this thing? But it, it was us. Yeah. I, I look, the one thing I got from this right off the bat, it must've been episode three or four was, 
I forgot how much Jordan paid his dues, not just the Pistons, but the losing, the joining a team that just was awful in the beginning. And, you know, when you think of Magic winning a championship his first year, joining Kareem and Norm Nixon, a very good crew, and you think of Bird um, winning in his second year and and winning three of four, and, you know, just – you think of their success early. They went to they went to very good organizations and teams, and the Bulls weren't anything. And Michael turned them into something. And I forget all that. It was so fun to watch the early winning. I but I want to get to this because I thought if if you're if you're just a basketball fan and you don't know who Stan Smith is, you just get the hell off this podcast because he's one of the most authoritative, smart guys in the history of covering the game. Two. Just Google Sam Smith and Bulls.com. I, I really enjoyed uh, Ask Sam Mailbag recently. I love this guy basically saying um, he wanted the alternate perspective from Sam Smith. And he writes, if you lived and grew up in Chicago, fine, enjoy. But we're talking the entire free world love, Michael. I wanted no part of it. When the championship started, there was no end to the suffocating Jordan worship. Pretty easy to get behind a winner after after they started winning. Uh, he was more like Michael Jackson than Michael than Magic Johnson. If you followed the NBA, you had to suck it up. And uh, and he goes into this whole thing, and he wants to know what. It, and, and you reply, I'm not sure you are allowed to feel that way and remain in the United States. Certainly not Chicago. I'm not going to report you, but this is your last warning. And you get into a very thoughtful uh, answer to him, basically saying that this guy was more than just a great basketball player. That he he represented many things to Chicago. Uh, he was he became the blueprint for especially the African American athlete and how to market yourself. I mean, hell, he's in a, for whatever whatever you can say about how bad um, some of his Charlotte teams have been. He's an owner. There's nobody who ever played that was uh, a, a a person of color that owned it that went back into ownership. And certainly Michael Jordan did it. Was there any part of you that went okay? I'm done with Michael and his and his act. Or 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 is there or or you still you know? Hey, this was a great point. This is a great part of my life. My life wouldn't have been the same without Michael Jordan and what happened with that team. And uh, and I have to, in hindsight, look at all the good things rather than anything that might have annoyed me. Well, personally, I, personally, I always had great appreciation for uh, Bulls and Jordan and. And always say, and, 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 and any, any, anybody who has had success, uh, if they're honest with themselves, realizes that it's more about uh, good fortune and good luck and being in the right place at the right time. You know, if I had written the uh, version of the Jordan rules about the Sacramento Kings, I, I'm sure I wouldn't be on your podcast. So, uh, circumstances. That's not true. I love the Kings. I, my sister lives yeah. in Sacramento, but you're right. All right. Well, well, you, you, why don't you call one of their beat writers next time and <laughs> see if he's busy. Get, get, their, get their Chris Weber losing in the seventh game of the exactly, West yeah. Finals. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. Chris Weber now wanting the last shot for a change. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you no, know, it was. It was just great fun. I mean, it was a great, everybody, it's wearying and it's wearying on Jordan too. And that's why, you know, he left when he did in 92, 93, obviously more factors with his father's murder and left when he was in 97, 98. I'm I'm interested, uh, you you know, in some respects, I was interested with the documentary, how they were going to portray that because it's the last dance. you know, and the theme is uh, the Bulls, you, you know, management broke him up or something, but, yeah, he was done. You know, he he he. Rec- you know, you, you saw in a lot of the earlier episodes with him talking yeah. with Ahmad, who he's obviously closest with, saying, "You know, I got to move on with my life. I'm worn out." And you know what was happening with Pippen and his estrangement with the team, with Rodman and his estrangement with reality. And so he knew, you know, he knew full well that he was going to drag it down to the end. And and. You know, appropriately enough, as it came down, he really was alone at the end. You know, Pippen, Zach went out. Uh, yes. He's got to play 45 minutes in that last game. He basically, and, that, and that's one of the great sequences to me in the history of the game, that last minute of game oh. six, where he makes, he makes basically everything Michael Jordan was over 13 years was displayed in one minute of basketball. Well, because if you, makes, and if nobody... 
and you just said that, Sam. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just got through reading your take on that, the, the, the last minute. This is one of the best things you ever yeah. wrote about the Bulls because that, you're right, that minute was a metaphor for the greatness of him and that franchise in ways you can't even – I mean, even the, the, play to, the, the play to go straight to the basket and get a quick two, people, people don't even think about that now. But I remember me and Isola looking at each other going, that was the – Worst thing that could have happened for the Jazz. They didn't even have to work for that shot. Right. Gave them too much time. And yeah. Then, you know, offense, defense, intelligence, not calling a timeout, realizing where the – Carl's not going to see the double coming, coming off from the baseline instead of over the top. I mean, there were so many elements of just that yeah. one and basically did it himself. Nobody else touched the ball. <laughs> Nobody else made a play. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it was it was it, it, it was only a minute, but but it, it, like you said, it was a great, it was a, just a wonderful metaphor and and yeah. you know, summary of everything this guy was and how special he was. No, no player essentially does those kind of things. So even though you know when you go through when you're there, you don't think of things as history. You know, I make the example sometimes, and uh, I wasn't at the Gettysburg Address, but I know of it. And I'm sure the people who were there are not thinking, well, you know, 150 years from now, people will be talking about, you know, these words and these hallowed ground. And they're thinking, man, it's cold. Finish up, Abe. Let's get out of here. And so, you know, when you're covering a team through the championships and going through those playoffs, as exhilarating as it, as it is, you know, you're just sort of, you know, following the elephants out of town. You know, yeah. Oh no, you're right. Stepping, you're stepping around all the stuff. You know, you're not. Yeah. And, and it, while it's exhilarating and exciting, it's it's also wearying. So it was a, it was an amazing run. But you know, from being a beat writer, your thought is, hey, what's the next story? What time's deadline? Do I yeah. have to have a you know an update to follow? You know, so you're just following it through, and you don't really but, have but, time to reflect on it that much. Yeah, but you, but you kind. I felt like it anyway, especially at the end, where I was like, "This is you're in the presence of something." I just remember, like, because the the New York Times had such tight deadlines then, that um, and we were pretty much writing for the Guam edition, and we would we would literally write switch leads, and you know, if one team won or the other won, and I can't tell you how yeah. many times I just started it with. Michael Jordan did this and did that, and my and the guy on the desk, uh, God bless him, Carl Nelson, would just go, "Ah, this works," because it was Michael Jordan. It was like a video game. It was just you press the button, it was going to happen, and it was. It's still surreal to me. I mean, I remember when he hit that shot. It wasn't like the Delta Center went quiet. It was like the whole state went quiet. It was a. It was like a funeral. And it was like, that's the power of what Jordan could do. That's what he did. I mean, I'll, I'll give you the greatest. Wilbon will never cop to this, but it's a great moment. I'm sitting next to Wilbon at the time. And Frank Isola's on the other side. And we're like, and Wilbon looks at me. Michael's missed like four or five shots in a row at the end. And he goes, look, Pippen's back's out. They're, they're losing game seven. He goes and they're I don't know what they were down, uh, five or seven. And he goes, it was like about three minutes left. He goes, I'm out of here. This guy, he's done. Jordan's done. And he walked away. And I'm like, Jordan's done. You're my, Wilbon, you're his guy. You can't say that. And sure enough, yeah, well, the, I ran into him in the press, say, the press great room thing after. Mike, and he goes, you know, I can't believe it. What's that? The great thing about Mike, you, you know, he's such a beloved, he's such a wonderful guy, is that he really, and, and that's why I think he's so successful and, and so popular in what he does, is he's more like a fan than a media yes. guy. Because media yes. guys tend to be a little more cynical about things. And I've seen this before. Let's sit it out. You know, and Mike reacts emotionally to so much that he sees things in the moment. And so in the moment, he was let down as much as he'd be over-exhilarated when they win and, you know, be like a fan celebrating, probably jumping up at the scorer's table. He cheers in the press box. <laughs> so he's a little different than everybody right. else. Right. No, you're, you're you're definitely right. We would look at each other if something happened, but I just remember thinking to myself, uh, "This this is not happening like it was." And I and I'm of the opinion I'm sure you were too, um, because you know we've seen nine and ten now that I don't think they. W this is just me. I don't think they win Game Seven um, in Utah. I think the narrative is a lot different. Maybe we still get this documentary, but we certainly don't get the happy George, happy Michael ending. 
because I think if he does, if that doesn't happen, I don't, I do not think they win Game Seven. Your thoughts? Well, right. We always, you know, consider those circumstances and and always give the disclaimer. Except it's Michael Jordan because you know he pulled off these these events so many times. You know, like the shot. It's sort of almost a bookend the shot in Utah, going back to the shot in Cleveland where. You know, I mean, the, the the trajectory of the Bulls would have changed so dramatically had they lost that series, because which they should have. They were they were not favored. They had they'd been swept by the Cavs that season. Oh, they were 0 and 6. Uh, Jordan had missed the, the the crucial free throws at the end of Game Four, which would have won the series. And now they had to go back to Cleveland for Game Five, and that was a series where they end up sweet, you know, upsetting the Knicks in the next round, who had a better record with Patino, 52 wins, and then taking a 2-1 lead on the Pistons in the conference finals, you know, and getting this incredible credibility, which wouldn't have been there had they lost in the first round and, and maybe start breaking up the team again. And yes. So, you never say never with Jordan, but that said, right, Pippen probably wouldn't have been able to play. Uh, and if you look back at that last game, Tony Kukoc is the only other player on the team who scored in double figures. Yeah, uh, you know there was there was virtually you know no offense left, and you're in Utah for Game Seven and all that kind of stuff. But that's also why I've always maintained you know there's this notion, and I know they had to play it up in the documentary that you know the, the Bulls were forced out and they would have won you know another title in the in ninety eight ninety nine, which you know in some respects you could say Jerry Krause. Saved Jordan's legacy. Not that it wouldn't have been a great legacy. But you know what? what? If he comes back in 98, 99 and doesn't even make the playoffs because, you know, Pippen is out and Rodman has gone nuts and, you know, a lot of guys have let, you know, and so how would it look then? I mean, it was, you know, it, you know what? It, it, was, that, it, it was the most fitting, perfect ending the way it was. You know what? Can we steal like a couple more minutes of your time just because I want to talk yeah, to you yeah, about sure. that? Oh, that's great. Okay. You know, there's, a, there's, a, there's a pandemic going on, so I'm not really going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of like my kids. I, no, I was going to make a COVID joke, but I'm not going to. It just would be bad for business. But here's the thing. By the way, Sam, Sam and I have something in common that he doesn't even know we have in common. We, we Even though he's a little older than I am, we our favorite player of all time is Willie Mays, who just turned 89. And I, I ended up like enjoying the Say Hey Kid when he came to San Francisco because my grandfather uh, was a big Giants fan and was always angry that they were losing. And Mays came and changed everything. And and um, and he was so fun to watch. And yeah, he was just, uh, you know, it was even when I started covering, shoot, uh, uh, sidebar games for the Sacramento Union back in the day with Don Drysdale, not the pitcher, but the beat writer for the Sacramento Union. He basically... Yeah. I would be in the lock. I'd be in the Giants clubhouse, and I would almost be. I would be uh, getting nervous just to go up and say hi to Willie Mays as he sat there as a community relations guy. It was just. It was just incredible. Uh, that I look at your career and I just think, God, what if Sam? What if Sam was a really good business reporter? He would have never been an NBA guy. Uh, it's almost like you had. It's almost like you had to not be good at that to become the success you became. I mean, it's a, to me, it's, there's a, there's a great moral to the story in just your career. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's a thing that Michael Jordan always said, they did it in one commercial and it, and it's true. You, you, you know, he, he said, and, and to me, it's one of the points that makes that, that another point that separates him. I don't mean to pick on LeBron. I have great yeah. uh, respect for LeBron and, and uh, he's one of the great players, but, you know, he, he, he has, he's afraid to fail. He was, you know, wouldn't get in, he doesn't get in the contest, you know, dunk and the three point. He, he, you know, he's more human than Michael. He worries about what people think. Michael didn't, you know, and Michael said in that one of the commercials, but I, I know he said it many times because he, because he did have these failures, spectacular failures where he would miss shots or things would happen or lose games. And he said, you know, the reason I succeed is because I failed so many times. Yeah. And that is the great lesson. You know, for any, anybody in life, you know, and, and guys in sports, all the great players. I know Bill Walton. Well, Bill's a good friend, and we we talk about a lot of stuff. And you could never get Bill to talk about 88 wins in a row at, at 
you know, at UCLA and all the great accomplishments. He remembers in vivid detail the loss, every loss, you know, when they lost the game after the streak and all these things. And I found that characteristic in, in, the, in the great, great players that they remember, they remember defeat and they remember failing because they never expected to. And it was so shocking to them. And that was always a lesson. And, and so mm. no, that, that was always something that I thought was special and admired about Jordan, that, yeah. you know, that, he, that, he was, that he challenged himself constantly. He was willing to lose, understood losing, but nothing drove him more. And yeah. you know, he had so much of that early in his career that when he finally got there, that, that's why he competed at that level. And so you say, well, would they have lost game seven? Well, they should have, but maybe not with Michael Jordan in the picture, you know, because yeah. he, he was able to accomplish these incredible things under, you know, under these difficult circumstances. All right. Real quick lightning round with Sam Smith um, of, of uh, Bulls.com, who essentially is, I, I don't want to say he's a mentor, but someone definitely when I got into the league, I looked up to him and many others, how they covered the beat, how they tried to maintain relationships with players, but also had a healthy distance. So if they had to write something critical, they could. It really, I, lo I love what you said about Jerry Krause. Real quickly, did Jerry Krause get a fair shake in this documentary? I, I like Jerry. I know he was socially, um, he, he probably had some social, uh, and that, social anxiety that disorder. That was the word you were looking for. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, fair is a fair is you know a, a personal view. Uh, yeah, judgmental. Uh, I, I feel he was depicted accurately. Jerry was very difficult to live with. Uh, in this yeah. modern NBA, he would be the executive vice president of basketball operations, and you wouldn't see him. He'd be making decisions behind the scenes, scouting. You know, essentially, Jerry was a rumpled scout. He was, but in that, in that NBA of the mid-80s, there wasn't the economics to have a big front office. And so the scout had also become the so-called face of the franchise. And, uh, you know, whatever the psychological issues would be about some popular kid growing up, wanting to be one of the guys, whatever, without getting into that, Jerry was, Jerry was difficult to live with, difficult to be around. But at the same time, if, if your antagonist or the protagonist of the story, but the antagonist for Jerry is Michael Jordan, and you've got no sense of humor. You can deal with Michael, and Michael was great fun to right. deal with. But you had to be on your guard, and you needed to be sharp because he was coming yeah. at you verbally as much. And Jerry could not deal with that. You know, he couldn't respond because he was kind of humorless. But at the same time, he's the boss, so yeah. Well, you know, I'm in charge. You know, you don't you know you don't win with Michael Jordan pulling that one. <laughs> and so difficult, but but on the other hand, he, he it was fair because Jerry was executive of the year twice, voted by his peers, which is not uh, you know which was among elite. Not many yeah. executives have gotten that. He was the ex, the chief executive of the franchise that won six championships, so there was no reason to fire him. Yeah, your employees don't like you. You know what? I, I didn't like most of the sports editors I worked for. It didn't, you know, didn't mean they should be fired. That's whatever. They did their job. I did my job. And it's not supposed to affect you. And so yeah. the team succeeded. The team succeeded. So, you know, I, I, Jerry's, you know, the issue with the public probably was displayed both with the players in that one statement and coming back from Detroit and he's dancing the aisle with the players. Get out of there. That's not, <laughs> that's not where you're supposed to be. And so, right. you know, who, 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 you know, has a celebration at work and, and, and invites the boss? <laughs> it's, just not, it's just not the way it works. And so uh, if Jerry had stayed in the background, like the owner, like, you know, whoever else, like basically the GM of every other team, he wouldn't have been probably depicted the way yeah. it was. But, you know what, it's like a great novel and every great novel, you know, needs, needs, a, needs a villain. You know, I just wish you know, were... I... I just wish you were alive to say, you know, like, or his wife could get up there and say something. I mean, because I think this, I think Jordan loved to dish it out. I don't know if he could take it. I could see if, if he joked with Jerry Krause about his weight and his height, I'd love to see, I'd love to see how Jordan looked up when Jerry said, you know, hey, uh, 
Hey, how's Rich Eskinas doing these days, Michael? How's he doing? You talked to him lately? Yeah, but see, Mike, that, that was the point. Jerry was, couldn't do that. He had no sense of humor, and he, he wasn't glib, and he wasn't quick. So if, if Jerry yeah. were alive today, he couldn't defend himself. And if he would, he'd have made it worse, I guarantee yeah, you. Not that, it's good, not that it's good he's passed away, you know. Yeah. My guess would be if he were alive today, he would probably say nothing. People would advise him to keep quiet about yeah. it, so you're going to make it worse. And if Jerry had been able to respond in a snarky way like you just did, then it wouldn't have been the way it was. Michael would have, like, you know, with Steve Carr with the fight or whatever. Once you go back at Michael, then he gains some respect for you. Jerry never knew or understood how to do that. Mm, that's, that's very good insight. Uh, I, believe my, I believe Brian Russell would have been called for pushing off had it been the other way around in game six. Do you believe Michael Jordan pushed off? No, no. Oh was, God, was, Sam, you're such was, a homer. Sam, you're such a homer. Was, well, you know what? That's what I don't get accused of very much after writing <laughs> the Jordan rules. But uh, no, it was incidental contact. You know, right. Jordan's the long arm guy. You know, look on that move. Russell is first of all, he's he's a good defender. He's not a great defender. Um, and Jordan is making a lightning quick. You know, stop on a dime, move at you, at a guy backpedaling. There's no way he was going to be able to stop and maintain position in front of him like that. And Jordan's arm, you know, to me, just you know, just just sort of made incident contact with his hip. It wasn't like in his chest or something. It was yeah. you know on his butt or on his hip. It was on the side. So you know, that's that's as Jordan would have said and always would have said, and, and America says, you know, that's the lament of losers. Yeah, you know, if you look back, if you want to go back to something in this series, Howard Isley's three that was overturned. Oh yeah, that was a two. Sense. Yeah, it was a three, Maybe but they called it a two. They well, called I... it no basket. Oh, that's you know, right. Points off the board. It was it was a three that they said came after the buzzer, which didn't. So, in this but NBA. you're right. But, you know, that's well, different. That's, yeah, that's different no, you're right. Something that happens early in the game, you ought to be able to make up. You can't go back and say, well, you should have three more points on the board. Yeah. Plus and they lastly, were better than the Jazz. What's that? Plus they were better than the Jazz. Yeah, they were they were better than the Jazz. And it's funny too how we the, remember Fran Blindberry, beat writer we both know for many years in oh, Houston. Yeah, Fran, Fran's great friend, yeah. Fran's great friend. And I remember him, gosh, it was it was must have been game six in Chicago the first year. And he goes, if Rod, he said, if Rodman makes these two free throws. Um, there's no God. And it was essentially a game in which they needed him to win and kick, kick, you know, win that championship that year. And he made them both. And I go, I go, I said to Fran, I said, Fran, I go, we, we try to put morals on these stories and like Rodman's not a worse human being than this. And he's like, Oh no, he's not like Carl Malone. I'm like, well, look at the things we learned about Carl Malone later that he fathered a teenager. You know, there was a, there was a young teenager that he fathered a girl with. Oh, yeah, but yeah, I guess right. my point is these guys are like, we don't know who's good and bad. They're all flawed. And and why judge them? And why not just appreciate what they were as well, players at some actually, point? And actually, actually, that was my message with the Jordan rules. But more than that, it was Charles Barkley's message of that era. You right. know, all the criticism Michael's gotten about the, my fault in part because of the Republicans by sneakers to uh, uh, comment, which was a joke, which is the last word quip of his. And yeah, got twisted around to other people's interests to make it a political philosophy. Barkley in that era was most famous, and that was an ethic of, of all the players, is that we're not your role models. You know, yeah. let's get role models in a place where it's appropriate, in, in your school, your parents, your home, whatever. Don't look at us as your role models. And, and you know, that was sort of, the, you know, the lesson that, that the, the players were universally talking about you know, in the 80s into the 90s, you know, so, you know, it's equally the same. And, that, and, that's, and that's what it is with actors, actresses, politicians, whatever, you know, don't, don't live your lives through them because they're essentially entertainers. Mm. This has been great, Sam, uh, and you've, you've been great. Thank you for the extra time. And uh, I could talk to you about this all day, all the, all the, all the side stories and whatnot. Uh, we were we were fortunate enough to have David Stern in his last interview 
Um, I look back on it, I can't believe he passed that soon after. Yeah. But we asked him about the whole gambling thing, and he was very much like, yeah, apparently Michael was in my living room the night before, uh, and um, I w that was a report somewhere. And I said, he said, Do you, are you crazy? You think we would want to lose Michael Jordan? I, I, I'm of the opinion still, and you might, you might completely disagree. I'm of the opinion still that while the league wasn't going to suspend him, there was some real serious conversation going on between both sides. And at some point, Michael just got sick of it and said, screw you guys. You're going to mess with me. I'm going to I'm going to walk away. I'm going to do my own thing. I have personal problems. That that's my own. I'll never be able to prove it, of course. And it's such a well, I'll uh, finish it. I'll, I'll finish it up there for you, Mike. And I yeah. it. it was good to talk to you. And you said very, very nice things about me. I appreciate that. And yeah. always, always appreciate seeing you um, when the Gambling stuff really originally started. It was with this Slim Buller character when Jordan didn't go to the White yes. House in 1991. He went on this gambling weekend. I mean, imagine the scandal level in this era that it might have been. He skips the trip to the White House. The rest of the team goes. He says he's going on a family vacation. He goes to a gambling weekend with Slim Buller. You know, it's sort of like, you know, playing pool with a guy named Lefty or something. Don't do that. Right. So unbeknownst um, to him, you know. Slim is a convicted drug dealer. There was a bail bondsman who financed the weekend who got murdered. And they found Michael's check in his, his belongings. That's how it came out. You know, and then the other things developed with the, you know, Buddy Richard Aquinas and going to Atlantic City between games, which was laughable. I don't know if he was at the New York Times then, but there was almost amazingly uh, immature, stupid thing the New York Times ever did. And Michael Jordan between games condemning him for being getting in at 2 a.m. I remember someone, one of the New York writers asking me about that. And I said, I'm shocked, too, because he usually gets in at 5. <laughs> and then he gets 50 points. What well, Harvey I, so wrote the column. Wrote, wrote, let me, oh, yeah, I know. Right. It was just, it was, no, it was uh, Dave Anderson. Oh, Dave you're right. Anderson, Dave Anderson found out. Nicest, That's right. The nicest man in the world. They're just yes. a wonderful, nicest man. In God Germany. rest his soul. Sort of the opposite of every other New York writer in the city. <laughs> Just a wonderful <laughs> guy, and you know he was outraged about this. And anyway, which was you know because Michael that's the way he lived his life. You know he played cards yeah. at five in the morning, he played golf at seven, and then he got you know fifty-two points. And he did it you know, you know playoff after playoff after playoff. And this legendary show. But I'll just tell you quickly. So the Tribune, you know this scandal comes out, which is quite so all the gambling stuff. So we put together an investigative team and go down and uh, to interview all these guys. Skynes, when the gambling stuff breaks with the league, the league's going to do investigation. And we go, we go to every single one of these guys involved, of course, other than a dead guy. And so we, our investigative guy, I wasn't part of that, but I'm covering the team still. And so, but he was a friend of mine. So I asked him, and he, I got his notes afterwards and we talked about it. So every time they went down and, and they would say, well, they'd do the interviews about what happened. And they say, well, what did the NBA investigate ask you? Well, we didn't talk to anyone from the NBA. They did not talk, their investigation did not talk to a single person involved wow. in that whole episode. They did not want, and they, if there was anything wrong, and there really was nothing major, I don't believe. But if there was, the NBA did not want to hear it. They were not going to deal with getting their Michael Jordan, their biggest producer, out of the yeah. league, David Stern. The ultimate capitalist of sports was right. not putting pressure on Michael Jordan. And what Michael was upset about, because he went to see Stern about this, and it was David was put on a defensive. You know, yes. he went to he went back to the league office when they called him up that one time. So he comes up, and he, and he only did it. I remember this vividly. He wasn't going to go see out of his way to see it. He tells the league, "I'll come see you when the team's in New York. I ain't coming otherwise." So we're in New York, and he goes up to see David, and he says. That this whole thing is bull, you know. And after all I've done, after all the, every interview you have me on, all these, all these, you know, shows, inside stuff, whatever they're called, I do all this junk for you guys. And this is what this is the way you deal with me. So uh, he was like furious with the league. Now it wasn't quitting because of that, but he was basically right. saying, "You guys lay off because, like your point, but Michael's point is, I'm going to do what I want." Right. <laughs> Michael Jordan, I, I'm worried about the league. And David is like, well, yeah, no, no, we apologize. <laughs> you know, <laughs> David's like regretting this. He says, oh, no. And, and like I said, when the Tribune, when we went looking and had a, you know, an investigative team that won Pulitzer, 
doing this story, we couldn't find a single NBA investigator who talked to anybody involved with the story. That's that's tremendous because it tells you exactly what happened. Uh, hey, this is great, Sam. I hope at some point when all this um, global pandemic stuff uh, uh, dies down a little bit, we can get some food or drink at some point. All right, Mike, again, good to talk to you and, uh, you know, good luck with your project there. Thank you, sir. And you, and yours as well. That was dope. Thanks to Sam Smith of Bulls.com for sharing stories and insight from the Jordan years and the last dance. Thanks also to my producer, Bruce Bernstein, for whatever it is that he does. <laughs> Thanks also to our editor, Ben Wolfen, for putting the audio puzzle together. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Each Tuesday, we have Full Court Press with Fanton Adams, where they have college basketball covered. Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto and Aaron has a new show every Wednesday. And Buckets, Boards, and Blocks with Monica McNutt is here each Thursday. Friday, well, you know, it's the Pure Hoops podcast with B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman. B.J. was a member of the first three Bulls championship teams, and his MJ stories are gold. If you have enjoyed The Last Dance, all of our Pure Hoops media shows over the last five weeks have been on that topic with a variety of amazing guests and voices like Will Perdue, B.J. Armstrong, Charlie Rosen, David Aldridge, and this week's guest, Sam Smith. Go back and check them out. All the stories are fresh and the shows are free. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Please continue to honor your fellow citizens by wearing your mask in public, washing your hands, and maintaining physical distancing when you venture outside. Treat everyone right because, look, we're all in this together. Pray for the safety of our healthcare professionals, other essential workers, and each other. And stay safe, everyone. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Mike Wise Show. Peace! The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.